Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Howdy folks, welcome back and thanks for making some space in your day for this. No announcements today, maybe some fun ones in the next month or so, but I'm very happy to jump right into this one. Although the context is around marketing pharma brands to physicians, it's equally relevant for marketing to scientists. We talk about customer journey experience, attribution, data challenges, and how do you use storytelling to get your customers to reach out to you. Are you ready? Let's go. All right, my guest today is Chris Coleman. He is the Executive Vice President and General Manager of Rev Health. Chris, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. Much, much appreciate the opportunity. Oh, I'm looking forward to this one. We're going to dip our toes into the healthcare world again today, but everything we talk about will be relevant for that world and the life sciences, I am sure. First of all, describe for us uh, what Rev Health does, just so my audience has some context for your angle on things. Yeah, absolutely. So Rev Health is a uh, full-service healthcare marketing agency. We focus largely on the pharmaceutical and biotech um, industry. And really every mode of marketing from promotional healthcare professional, consumer marketing, as well as medical communications and, and SciComm as well. So it's an exciting space to be in. And I spent most of my career working in the space. And I'd say it's not just evolving quickly, but the, the nature of that change is very much informed by the overall consumer market space and also in the wake of COVID. Unfortunate, but I'm fortunate to see the change. Yeah. So when you say it's changing, gosh, I lost my thought already. It was right there. <laughs> it's because I got you. Early. Oh, the consumer part. Sorry. I got locked into the COVID part, but I meant to ask you about the consumer part. Do you mean that in the sense of how all of us are changing our buying behaviors that's affected how you market as well? Yeah, I, I think for a long time, we thought that the physician audience was of, of two modes of thinking. You would go to work, You'd be a doctor and you'd step outside of your practice door and you would be a consumer. And uh, I think a, a pertinent to, you know, both of us um, recording this podcast from our homes and I think both of us living in the world that there's a lot of blurred lines and those blurred lines are happening in the physician's offices as well. Not only are they conducting telemedicine from homes, but they keep long hours as well. They are consumers in the middle of the day as well. They're consumers at home and they work at home. It, it, it's a world with a lot of blurred lines. And I think the physicians in particular, if you were to paint a broad picture, are part of a more affluent group of consumers. And they're used to certain consumer experiences. They're used to certain user experiences. They're certain conveniences that they expect. And when they have engagement with healthcare brands, when they have engagement with pharmaceutical reps, pharmaceutical companies, 
they are going to start to, as they already have, started to expect a different level of experience. I think the most plain is our physicians are working extended hours and they're expecting service at extended hours. Very easy to support via reps. We have our reps working long hours and they're motivated to do. But I think that there's a rich ecosystem of service that doesn't just turn off at business hours. When they get digital engagements, when they want to call a 1-800 number, when they want to email a manufacturer for support, when they want two-way engagement in a digital channel, they're going to expect, want, and quite frankly, we need to respond to that change. When I say consumer experiences, that's a lot of what I'm speaking about. The, the touch points that the physicians see, not just physicians, nurses, imaging specialists, payers, they're all expecting the same experience that we're used to seeing from consumer brands that we engage with every day. Yeah, that's, I don't disagree with any of that. And in fact, that's come up a few times on the podcast. I've been thinking about, I'm giving a webinar next week or I'm participating in a webinar. I'm not giving it, but just one of the notes I made to myself today is your content is competing with every other piece of content in the world. <laughs> not just your competitor's content. You're competing with Amazon, Netflix, anything that can, someone can pull up on their phone. Facebook, Twitter. TikTok, YouTube. Right. And your service experience is competing with every other service experience in the world. Or at least it has to match an expectation, right? Yeah, and I think some of what we need to look at too is there, there's a choice to be made when the physicians make a, a prescription. There's a choice to be made when they make a referral. There's a choice to be made perceptually when they invite a rep to come into their practice and when they search. If they're going to search for information about a product, about a specific brand, and you see the manufacturer's website and they've been there before or they know the manufacturer and they think that's a bad user experience, that they're not going to get the information they want, there's a long list of choices, both competitors and other sources for that same brand that are not the manufacturer. Just from that one use case, the value of creating a better user experience and the value of making that information easily accessible needs to be clear. It's the same way, like I think if most of us had the option is to renew our license at our private organization, not the DMV, we'd probably be better off going to the one that wasn't the DMV. The customer experience is terrible. We know it from the beginning. I don't think it's the fault of the people who work there, but at the end of the day, it's not something anybody wants to engage with. It's unlike any other experience like that. And I think that there are a lot of manufacturer websites, for instance, that don't meet that need. There's a lot of manufacturer marketing that is just not good, not imaginative, not a good user experience, not informative, not easy to um, ascertain. And those are the opportunities. That's where when we talk about a consumer experience, it's not the consumer experience, it's the ease of use, the intuitiveness of it, the timeliness of it, the accessibility of it. I love that because that leads right into kind of my first real question, which is, Talk about marketing activities where attribution is difficult because certainly user experience that happens at places that might be measured but and certainly can be evaluated, but it's a challenge. And just because something's difficult to measure doesn't mean it has no value. So give us some thoughts on this and maybe a few activities, examples that, that seem challenging. No, I, I, it's a good question. And as I had said, I, I work for Rev Health and a marketing agency inside of the space. A lot of the products we work with are pharmaceutical brands. When you ask a client, well, kick off meeting, what's success look like? The obvious response and the right one is scripts, 
We want to see sales. We want to see the physicians writing the prescriptions. Most digital marketing, there's a huge air gap between me having the most successful digital marketing program and there being sales. Because the, the, the decision is made in the EHR, it's made at, at the point of care when they're seeing, even there to protect the privacy of both the physician's decision and the patient's identity, there's still a bit of an air gap there. But all of the narrative leading up to that specific exchange, all of the incremental elements of education that are part of that journey, there's not a direct line of attribution the way you see in a consumer sales model. So when we talk about metrics and analytics, it's a lot of it is impression driven, share of voice driven from a digital standpoint. It's do, are we reaching the, the physicians who are writing the scripts? Are we reaching the physicians who are writing the competing scripts? That still doesn't actually say that they're moving into a, into a mode of action. And it very rarely says that we're moving into a specific mode of action that's the result of seeing an ad or clicking on a banner ad or clicking on an email. And all those are very baseline metrics. But what we do rely on is, do we frequently have touch points with a physician? But there's still never that golden ticket of, they saw these three elements. They had two websites visit and a rep visit. And now they're locked up. They're, they're writing the scripts for days. And that's what makes it a very difficult model. That, and I think of my exposure as last 15, 16 years inside of the marketing space, they relied very much on the reps being the model. The reps are in the office. Those are the physicians that are tr traditionally writing scripts. Why? Because the physicians are telling the reps they're writing scripts. It's, I've actually heard that as a metric. We are more sophisticated now. We use, it's true, right? I've heard it. It's the best marketing ever. I said so. So one of the things we look at is, okay, let's look at, let's look at the actual attribution in, uh, um, you know, through digital analytics. It's specifically attribution, uh, NPI number, license number, claims data. And okay, now we get a much fuller picture. Yes, your physician's rep are writing scripts, but they're writing twice as much as they're telling you and they're writing to the competitor too, right? Which doesn't make the first statement true. Yes, they are writing scripts and they're telling you they're writing scripts and they are a strong writer. But when you look at the overall volume, they're actually fairly diligent about how they're deploying and how they're making that decision-making. And what I'm very interested in, and we actually have the data now is, well, what is the model that they're actually writing? Is it random? Do they write based on gender, weight, comorbidity, reaction to a previous therapy? Do they, are they interviewing the patient? Are there other pharmaceutical products involved in the decision-making? A lot of chronic diseases have patients have multiple comorbidities. Let's look at the data and let's get a better understanding. It's not just that they're writing now. Now I can involve that messaging. Now I could be more specific about what that attribution model looks like. If I have a rep who's there and they're talking around the right patient profile, then I see a more successful adoption of the therapy. But if I didn't have the right patient model to begin with and they were writing against ContraPoint, maybe, maybe there's an unrecognized opportunity there, but you need the data in order to begin to see some of this modeling. And I think one of the dangerous things when we talk about attribution and data is, um, and I think we've moved past it, like everyone wants to use data, but what is the right data? What are the few salient points that we're going to be able to use that we can take action that are going to be meaningful, that are not going to overwhelm us, that are going to have some meaning? And I think that's a lot of, not only how I see but, you know, my role in, inside of marketing in the agency world, but I think the opportunity for us to add value as marketers to our clients, because it, it, otherwise it could be overwhelming to look at all of these different data points, your internal feeds um, relative to sales data, what the reps are telling you, what your, where your MSLs are deployed, what your payer data looks like, and for that to now be transacted into how do we reach these physicians inside of the marketplace, outside of the personal sales model? 
Yeah, so many things in there that I just want to touch on. First of all, when you talk about not being able to attribute things, life science, my world struggles with that like every business does. I didn't really think about how privacy concerns around a doctor and a patient mean it get almost impossible to know you know, the final yeah. touch ever. And then uh, the whole thing about data, this has come up before, and I have a rule about data, is if you don't know how you're going to use it, if you're not going to act on it, don't collect it because of the very thing you talk about, the overwhelm. Like you could be looking at all this, what should I do with it? So you have to think, what would I do if I knew X? I Tell me about that, and then maybe I'll do something. But otherwise, yeah. it's just it's also, it's also the liability of the data. I, I think the model needs to be not holding on to the data because, A, we, we want to protect whether or not it's a physician or a patient, you want to protect the data. And, and the second point being is data is only as good as the window that you're looking at. Internally, I think a lot of pharmaceutical manufacturers look at longitudinal data to understand like what last year looked like. It's especially pertinent in an area of COVID where we saw a massive dip in um, Salesforce being able to reach specific physician audiences, because traditionally you'd look back a year and a year's data is fouled, right? It's not bad data, it's an anomaly. It's not as reliable from a data point when you're looking at trying to plan out marketing because there's there was a massive glitch, good or bad. Like it's not reliable to be able to paint a picture moving forward. But I think when you begin to look at, okay, if I look at two or three years ago data and today's data, there's at least a longitudinal line that makes sense. Rather than if you're looking back a year's data, it, that longitudinal line is frenetic at best. So I think that's part of how we need to start looking at what are we doing this year? What was done the last six months? And how do we begin to, to take action? I think if you also look from a measurement standpoint, there needs to be the opportunity to look at things in, in a little bit shorter windows as well. We are a both healthcare professionals and consumers fairly fickle in the mechanisms that we accept or reject marketing. Banner ads, emails, and conference engagements are reliable ways for us to be able to build awareness about a brand. But I think that there's a lot of emerging opportunities, not only with content marketing, native marketing, um, being able to refine the way that we're looking at uh, web experiences. But we also need to, to create catalyst opportunities for there to be reasons to search for these brands, reasons to reach out to reps, reasons for us to be able to investigate new therapies. And I think that's, that is more basic storytelling. That is more basic, why do you care and what's in it for me as a physician or a healthcare professional? And those are, I think, are the opportunities for us to bridge data with the the narrative portion of it and not just make it make sense from a business standpoint but there's a part of it that should be interesting there's a part of it that why do we engage the brands that we want to engage with it's either they touch us in some way they meet a need for us or we're drawn to it we're drawn to the narrative the brand narrative or we're drawn to the characteristics of what it represents for us I could pull up a newsletter that I read in the last half hour if you didn't hack my computer because <laughs> there was a quote in there <laughs> that said, let's stop interrupting reading what they're interested in and give them something they're interested in. No, it's the truth. And there is part of it which is feeling good about the brands you're associated with. And even pharmaceutical companies offer that. Physicians want to make decisions that they feel good about that they feel as though that the patients are going to respond to. I know no physician wants to be second guessed by a patient that, that rifled through Google 10 minutes before the appointment. They want 
patients feeling confidence in their action because that's a value add in going to the physician. And the physicians want to feel good about the products that they're, you know, endorsing would be the, the wrong characteristic of it, but administer their patients for the spirit of medicine. Nobody wants to administer a medicine that's going to cause a ton of side effects or not be effective. I think we had a previous conversation, which is the EpiPen represented a huge opportunity. If you had a child with any kind of allergy, it, w- it was a expensive, but, you know, some confidence in having a child to go out into the world. And as a physician, it was, look, this is what you need to do as a parent. You need to have an EpiPen. With the myelin myelin price scandal, like, I don't think there's a physician in the world who felt good about telling a patient to use a myelin product, but they had the market cornered to some degree. And you you do want to provide an opportunity. Any competitor coming to market, there's a ripe opportunity in order for you to disrupt something that was there and create an alternative choice for the physicians. And what physician wasn't going to choose that, especially in the window at which they were going through their lawsuit? So let's talk about, you talked about banners and emails and other things. And we've been talking about non-attributable marketing activities. Talk about using the content from those activities in ways that drive activity that is measurable? That's a good question. I think I brought up EHR as an example. EHR is exciting because it does a few things. It's right at the point of care. In many instances, we can create an opportunity be, uh, when a specific set of patient requirements, protecting the patient's privacy, but a specific set of patients' criteria are met you know, has the patient failed the therapy before? Do they have the appropriate comorbidities that match the indication? Have they been diagnosed with a specific disease? Do they represent the attributes of our ideal patient type? And then the physician, we can also target them, both by NPI number, by their unique identifier, by specialty, by geography, by the kind of institution they work for, by the fact that they happen to be the healthcare professional who's sitting in front of the right patient. And when you put those two things together, we have the right opportunity with the patient, the right targeted audience at the point of care. That's about as close as you can get to having a rep in the room to talk about the brand benefit. There's a lot of specifics about the workflows to when we can show a branded message and when we can't. But I think that when you talk about providing value from an unbranded standpoint, it's pretty ideal. When we talk about the context to be able to say that was your that was the ideal patient physician when you see them again, it's also ideal. And in being able to target specific physicians, you do see a, a more direct attribution model. I do think that there's a lot of truth as much as I would poke fun at the reps being in the physician's office asking the physician if they're writing scripts. The rep is there because the physicians they're selling to the physician. So there there is a truth to the model that I can't argue with at all. But the same is true as to this industry over-indexes on marketing to existing fans, right? Existing brands, users. So it's a very interesting model, right? Few other industries have the opportunity for you to get a direct infallible attribution model as to when you deliver a message, the physician writes a script. It's an abstraction and without causality, but it is an opportunity for us to see, okay, I've hit this physician in every channel and they're writing scripts because that's typically what we do. I think the really interesting thing to take advantage of in this day and age is, okay, what about the physician who may have a hundred patients and they're writing that are the right patient and they're writing 10 scripts for brand A, 80 scripts for brand B and 10 more scripts for brand C. Like that is a ripe opportunity if you're brand A or C. All you need to do is move the needle a little bit so what are, what are the conditions? Like, how do you A-B test yourself into either message, 
opportunity or to begin to do a little deep dive as to, is this a access issue? Is this a patient comorbidity issue? And for you to do a little bit of a deep dive into experimenting, because most of the brands have a pretty wide band of physician population that fits that. And then you have physicians who are never going to write your brand for whatever reason. And to a large degree outside of specialty level targeting, we, we ignore those physicians. But they're also an opportunity to begin to experiment with because in all likelihood, they're either less expensive to access or the ROI for the one or two physicians you hit is especially high. The question is, what is the value of that population? Nice. Yeah. I'm learning a lot about just the how prescriptions and brands are sold in that whole process. And you've opened my eyes to thinking like, before this conversation, I would have thought patient has X needs X therapy. I write this brand. But then you realize every patient is still different because of the comorbidities you talk about and other indications. And then you have to say, oh, in that case, then I'm going to use this one because whatever, I'm not a doctor, but I completely understand the doctor has to make a choice and he might have a small arsenal of choices that he's narrowed down, but he's probably never going to just write only one brand. Is that fair? That's fair. And in addition, there's the dynamic of insurance coverage because the physician may have a preference, but the institution may already have a standard of care that's approved for a specific kind of mm -hmm. disease. And the insurer may have an agreement with the oral likelihood they have a coverage model that supports a small suite of therapies for a specific, for a specific disease. And again, a lot of that's invisible to much of the American public doesn't understand that part of the care cycle. And it's an important sure. part when you look at private and uh, private insurance and, and Medicare, Medicaid, and also when you begin to look at advocating for yourself, like you may believe it's the right therapy for through research or anything else. But if you don't understand the mechanics of prior authorization in order to get your insurance to to pay for it, you could be making a very costly decision to one therapy over the other. And I think most patients and caregivers are looking for an economical and effective therapy, the two being working together very important. So there's a lot of dynamics inside of healthcare that typically fall outside of just one specific discipline. There's um, there's healthcare professional marketing where you market promoted brands to physicians. There's the payer aspect of it where you're going to the decision makers within inside of large institutions and insurance companies, talking to them about choosing a specific therapy for approval inside of their ecosystem. There's an entire medical education practice that allows you to talk about the brand, the, the product advantages and the unmet needs that a specific product fills. So what I find rewarding about this industry is all of the nuance to these different categories and how they work together, but separately, quite frankly, even outside of the consumer marketing space where you see an ad on cable, which I think is how a lot of people perceive the pharmaceutical industry is watching yeah. CNN and, and Fox News, right? <laughs> For sure. Let's talk a little bit about how COVID has accelerated the maturation of marketing. What have you seen in the last now almost two years? Yeah. As I had said, this was... um. A few years ago, this was uh, an industry that like probably like two or three years behind most consumer marketing, and it was very much a rep-driven um, engagement. 
I, I think a lot of the stats, if I'm recalling correctly, is anywhere between 10 to 12, 15% of your marketing budget was digital. It, it, on the heels of COVID, I, what we're seeing is something that is much more varied, but a diverse ecosystem where some brands are doing away with the sales force. Some brands are fighting against allowing Salesforce to have a shared screen experience like the one we're having now and be able to present the benefit of a brand or have a relationship with their physician. There's some instances like the critical care space where it may never be the same again and reps are not very much welcomed outside of a handful of institutions. So what does that model look like? In many instances, that's now shifted to a completely HCP, um, healthcare professional targeted advertising campaigns and using email, display advertisements, podcasts, pre-roll video. And this has actually introduced a big stimulant that starts to talk about is the healthcare, where, where can I reach the healthcare professional? Where can I target them? And I think undiscovered country previously was targeting healthcare professionals on consumer social networks. It was an ill-informed misconception that healthcare professionals were never on Facebook until last year. Well, it, you know, Statistically, it's, it was not only probable, but more likely than a lot of other populations that they were on Facebook. They're, um, they're well-educated and uh, um, have discretionary income. And those two things combined make them slightly more likely to be on Facebook to begin with as a population. And um, their age range of, of most physicians puts them right in the sweet spot of where Facebook's commands the market. So Facebook and Instagram are really relevant ways to reach the physician. The challenge is you're not going to pump an MOA into the newsfeed and expect a really good response. So the question is like, what does that marketing look like? Calling back to the earlier conversation, right? Consumer experiences. How do we create a consumer-like experience to engage a healthcare professional about making a decision about a product in their day job? Is that making them feel good about the brands, making them feel good about the manufacturer, pointing out to the burden of the disease in, in people's private, private lives and caregiver and family dynamic? These are all huge opportunities for creative to explore, push into these spaces, because the access to the physician is there. The ability to reach the, this audience is there, both targeted and not. And, um, you know, th this is where we need to begin to look at, are we making the right decisions and how creative is manifest? Are they culturally relevant? Like, is it appropriate to target a physician there? I think for a lot of diseases it is, especially when we talk about making decisions about patients' lives. And in particular, making them feel good about treating these patients in such a way and getting to that unmet need. We have to stop looking at the physicians purely as scientists who are conducting the science of medicine in the office every day, so much as they are people who are struggling with the same decision-making burden that we, a lot of us do as both family leaders and as people making decisions um, as they go through their lives. And to intermingle the art and science that is medicine, I think it is it is naive to not look at the emotional journey there and not be able to use it as a brand in order to build awareness and help with that decision making. All right. I love that idea. And that leads perfectly to my next question, which is about um, you, in that previous conversation where I'm going right to the content now that, yeah. that really excites me. And the question is, what would happen if we put two KOLs in a room and let the camera roll. Talk about this idea because I think it's, I think it's cool for all kinds of things. Just little mm, mini documentaries, almost. But you tell me. Yeah, no, I, I think that this is an idea that I think a lot of brands talk about, but few do. And it's an opportunity. I've had, I've been fortunate enough to again working in this industry for a long time. I've seen you, know, you put two KOLs, two high competent high performance physicians who really know the category and likely know each other into a room. Before the cameras start to roll, there's usually a good amount of fodder, 
little bit of bickering of ideas, sometimes a lot of humor, a lot of talking about what was going on in the industry, um, what, what, you know, them working with patients and working with colleagues. And, and personally, I find it really engaging, but it is, I think it's gold for a brand to begin to look at under controlled circumstances. But for us to then, okay, then now the cameras are rolling and now we're going to, it's going to be like CNN primetime and it's like the most serious news day ever. Yes, there's a value to that in particular, having two high performing professionals talking and debating the benefits of a product. But I think we lose a lot of the energy of the people dynamic of two professionals who are interesting people having that conversation and moving into a little bit more of banter and challenging and moving forward and having it be a little bit more conversational, I think provides a lot of value to color the conversation, to color who these key opinion leaders are that helps shape why they're making some of the decisions. A little bit of the personality as to, you know, how much bravado do they have? How thoughtful are they? What kind of conversation, what kind of analogies they use to do the problem solving as they begin to figure out the practice of science in their, in their everyday work? And I think we rob ourselves of an opportunity when we're not injecting humor, levity, uh, a little bit more of the people dynamic. And we expect, again, the same physicians, and you had brought it up, they are making a decision as to whether or not they're going to give a few minutes of their attention to these two KOLs speaking, YouTube, TikTok, cable television, a magazine. We need to be able to compete. Part of that competing is being able to have a little bit of the show preserve itself and a little bit of the personalities and highlight and celebrate a little bit of what it's like to be a person practicing in this space and that decision making. Yeah. And I think you tell me it would be my guess just based on my experience outside of healthcare that people would, the resistance to that would partly be, oh, they could say anything. Not thinking that there's an editing process. We can, you can at least make sure that they there's nothing inappropriate or they're not talking about products or making claims that they shouldn't do all those things and see what you come out with. And then on the plus side is that whole humanizing your brand or humanizing just the practice of medicine, realizing that, as you say, those doctors do have lives. They do sweat the decisions they have to make. What kind of person are they? How do they think about these things? Are they thoughtful and so on? Yeah, I do think that the fear of having it approved, the fear of going through an MLR board. Um, you know, I don't want to be naive and say that doesn't exist. It does. So it, this needs to be tempered with relevance to the audience. But we very much hone these hone these dialogues in and we rob a little bit of the life of them. And I think that is what has so much value. And it's it's savvy from a media perspective and it's savvy for its benefit to the audience. If it's watched more completely if it's thought about more, if you have actually have more attention onto that dialogue because it's more naturalistic, it's not just a talking head. I think that shows a lot of maturity in the evolution of the use of media that we, we weren't seeing inside of the industry four or five years ago. And I think it's also the opportunity in so much of our lives are lived in remotely and uh, not necessarily asynchronously, but in real time via video and phone and voice chat now that it, it is a lot more naturalistic to think that this is you're listening into this dialogue as it's happening. And, and that inherently makes it a little bit more interesting. Still needs to be clinically accurate, still needs to be able to cap off on the requirements. 
but it could have a little bit more of the life breathed into it really effectively and I think have a lot more meaning to our end audience. Is there any reason why, you know, a good, well-educated marketer who's familiar with the space couldn't make a reasonable edit with the expectation that the Medical Legal Review Board would approve it? In other words, they're not handing everything over and saying, what can we use? They're saying, we think this fits your guidelines. Did we miss anything? And I would presume over time they would get better at it. Yeah, I, I think more. Some manufacturers are in a better place to do that than others. I think you, the smaller manufacturers, where there's it's a smaller group of people. There's a lot more communication and the ability to get the final product in front of the review board for approval will go a long way. I think that'll create enough market pressure that it'll find its way. There's some large manufacturers that are very sophisticated in how they look at things like social media how they look at KOL engagements. So it is very much part of the, it needs to be part of the company culture in order to see it. But I think we need a couple of really good case studies in marketplace. If you look at brands like Hims or 23andMe that are healthcare brands that kind of circumvented your more traditional process, I think that those are challenging what could be. And they're challenging how to reach healthcare professionals even though part of their initiative is actually to circumvent the more traditional pathways. I think when you look at how telemedicine companies are beginning to market themselves, not just to healthcare professionals, but, but physicians, that is also an opportunity because we're seeing it come from a telecommunications standpoint. And they have a relatively, whether or not it's by design or otherwise, naive way of looking at it. That is challenging how the pharmaceutical manufacturers are looking at it as well. And I think that is, that's an exciting stimulus that I'm welcome to see as I am to see Amazon come into the marketplace because such a large organization that has so much of our country's share of voice from a consumer standpoint, from a patient standpoint, really does treat the patient as someone who's able to make a choice. And that consumer mentality is going to put a lot of downward pressure on the convenience of things like telemedicine, the convenience of going to physician, and the convenience of how health insurance works too. That sounds good. Chris Coleman, this has been a true education for me. For people listening to this podcast tomorrow, I am publishing my interview with Frank Dolan. You're listening to this podcast probably a month after that. But we had, if this was interesting to you, Frank and I talked about healthcare marketing events where brand would invite a number of physicians or other people to listen to some KOLs. And so there might be some overlap there of interest. But thank you so much for educating me on all these things. I think what you said is going to be valuable, of course, in healthcare, but also life science broadly. Of course. And thank you for the opportunity, Chris. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure indeed. I told you that'd be a good one. Chris is a great guy, and I'm so glad we connected. I hope you were inspired by this to think about how you might do some things differently. If you're a regular listener, you know what to do. If you're new here and you enjoyed this conversation, you almost certainly know at least two other people who should also listen to it. Please share it with them. I'd be very grateful. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode Opportunities for biotech are growing on the African continent in a lot of areas of life science. Make sure you don't miss that one to find out more about that. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.